Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter number 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you. You can grab that Bible and turn to page 121 in the back, and you would be at Romans chapter 4. Now, I know some of you may be still slightly frozen this morning, but what I want you to do is to put on your imagination caps for just a moment, all right? I want you to imagine that you are in debt for $20 million due to a number of missteps and mistakes that you made in your financial life. You are in debt $20 million. And just for the sake of argument in this situation, I want you to imagine that you make $50,000 a year. Now, how long is it going to take you to pay off $20 million in debt? And the answer would be if you paid all of your salary, 400 years, four centuries to pay that off. And the truth of the matter is if you're $20 million in debt and that's what you make, there's no hope for you. You are headed for bankruptcy. But I want you to imagine in this scenario that a benefactor steps up. And he says, I realize you're $20 million in debt, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you $200 million. And the $200 million will not only wipe out your debt of $20 million but, and rescue you from bankruptcy, obviously, but it will credit your account with $180 million. Now, just imagining that's your situation, what would you say to that? I mean, what would your response be to that? I mean, you would say, hey, that's amazing. Uh, that is awesome to the max that someone would do that. I mean, you couldn't get any better news than that. And if you assume in that situation that someone did that for you, how would you respond to them? Well, you would have, obviously, extreme gratitude, right? In fact, I think if you were thinking clearly, you'd feel pretty unworthy of someone just stepping forward and giving you $200 million. Now, what does that little story do for you when you hear it? And some of you are thinking, that is a total fantasy, Hess. Nothing could be more outlandish than that. Of course, the reality is that God has done far more than that for us in the realm of salvation. You see, we were in debt due to sin and rebellion, spiritually bankrupt, helpless and without hope. And yet God stepped forward and removed our debt, paid our debt, and then, amazingly, credited us with the righteousness of Christ. And when you look at that, you, you have that same kind of a response. You just go, that is amazing. That is awesome to the max. We've been involved in a series of messages that we have entitled, Our Great Salvation. And we have been pointing out the fact, as sunlight, as sunlight goes through a prism, and it refracts colors out of that. Those make up the elements of light. 
And so we have said our great salvation, when we see it through the lens of Scripture, refracts into elements and concepts that make up our salvation. And we've been looking at them, things like redemption and propitiation and reconciliation and justification and imputation. And all of those elements make up the light of our salvation. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe some who've been involved in this little series may say, well, you know, all those terms you're using, they sound very theological. I'm not particularly into theology. But I want you to know, and this is important to understand, that theology is for everyone. Do you realize that even an atheist has a theology? Everybody has a theology. The only issue is going to be do I have a good or a poor theology? Do I have a sloppy or a strong theology? And every committed follower of Christ should give themselves to the study of theology and a study of the Bible. And here's what's really important to understand. Only when you are initiated into these truths... <laughs> Can you fully understand all that salvation is? Can you fully understand all that God has done for us? And I don't know about you, but I have, I have experienced this, but as you investigate the elements of salvation, what happens? You are able to freshly relish your salvation, to freshly enjoy it. It reminds me of when you have a delicious drink. You know what I'm talking about? When you have that delicious drink, you just sort of swish it around in your mouth before you swallow it. It just tastes so good. Or when you have some extremely tasty food, your favorite food, and it's prepared just perfectly, what do you want to do with it? Just slam it down as fast as you can? No, you slowly chew it because you want to savor it and you want to enjoy it. And that's really what we're doing. We look at our great salvation and we break it down into some of these elements. And I just want to say this for some people who might even have thought, hey, why are we spending five weeks on this? Listen, too much cannot be said about the greatness of Jesus Christ. Too much cannot be said about the salvation that he won for us. And so if you haven't been involved in all of our messages, I want to encourage you to get all of them. They're available on our website at wildwoodchurch.org. You can also uh, get them uh, out in the gathering hall. But we have looked at so far redemption, where we saw God the divine emancipator. We've looked at propitiation, where we saw God the divine provider. We've looked at reconciliation, where we saw God the divine restorer. We've looked at justification, where we saw God the divine arbiter. And today we come to one that maybe is less familiar to many people, and that is imputation, where we see God, the divine bookkeeper. And if you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 4, and by the way, this is the imputation chapter of the Bible, I want to read from chapter 4, beginning with verse 2 down through verse 8, and would invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read. Paul writes, for if Abraham, verse 2, was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Now the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now, as we look at imputation and God, the divine bookkeeper today, our plan is to do three things. Number one, we're going to look at the concept of imputation. And then number two, we're going to look at a beautiful picture that is in the New Testament of imputation. And then we're going to look at the core reality of imputation. We're going to see that there's two key phases that relates to our salvation we need to understand. So we're going to look at the concept, we're going to look at a beautiful picture, and then we're going to look at the core reality, which involves two phases of imputation. So let's begin by looking at this concept, which may not be familiar to many of us. And the key term, key Bible term, is the term logizomai, L-O-G-I-D-Z. O-M-A-I. And legizomai is an accounting term. It means to credit. It means to calculate. It means to consider. It was used in ways like this to put down something into a person's account or to enter into an accounting book or to credit or to charge to a particular account. Now you say, well, where does the word imputation come from? Well, our English word, impute, comes from the Latin word, which has the same basic meaning, to charge or to credit one's account. So we've just borrowed the Latin term to charge or to credit, and we have the word impute. But the parallel word, Bible term, would be legizomai. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Fletch. Uh, That's just one of my favorite movies. I have a series of movies that I really like, and I like the movie Fletch. And in the movie Fletch, you have this lovable scoundrel who is on a quest. He's actually a newspaper reporter, and he's, he's out to root out corruption and drugs. And at one point, he finds himself at a country club when he's doing his investigation, and he meets this wealthy person or hears about this wealthy guy named Ted Underhill. And one of the things that he does is he orders this incredibly lavish lunch, and then he tells the waiter, charge it to the Underhill's account. Well, that is actually the concept behind imputation, the idea of charging it to another account. And Paul really gets excited about this concept. Legizomai occurs some 40 times in all of the New Testament, 34 times by the Apostle Paul, and 11 of those times in Romans chapter 4. In fact, we see it used in verse 3. What does the Scripture say? 
Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him, legitimai, as righteousness. Verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is, legitimai, credited as righteousness. Verse 8, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not, this is legitimai, take into account. I think the NIV says, who the Lord will never count. And here is the idea, the concept of, of, of imputation. Whenever there is a deposit made, imputation occurs. So that's the general idea of the term. That's the concept of the term. Now to put some clothing on all of that, I want us to secondly go and look at a beautiful picture of the idea of imputation that we see in the New Testament, and it's found in the book of Philemon. And you say, I know I've heard of that book. I'm not quite sure where it is. Well, if you find First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, then Titus, there's Philemon. It's hiding right before the book of Hebrews. So you might want to turn there. And while you're turning there, I want to just give you a little bit of background regarding the book of Philemon. There's really three people involved in this book. One is the guy Philemon, who is a very well-to-do man who is also a believer. The other character involved in the book is the Apostle Paul, and the third character involved in the book of Philemon is a man by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus was a slave under Philemon. And apparently what happened is he stole something from Philemon, and then he broke the law of the day, and he ran away. And he ran away to Rome, which, by the way, according to the law of the day, was punishable by death. And we don't really know how it happened, but somehow when Onesimus came to Rome, somewhere he crossed paths with the Apostle Paul, who was under house arrest there. And Onesimus, we don't know exactly how, was converted to trust in Jesus Christ. And after he came to trust in Christ, there in Rome, he ministered in a very significant way to the Apostle Paul. In fact, verse 13 of Philemon even stresses that. So you have Onesimus stealing something. He runs off. He crosses paths with Paul. He comes to Christ. He serves Paul. But Paul says, you know what's right is I need to send Onesimus back. And I'm going to send him back now to Philemon. But I'm sending him back in a different way because now he's a brother in Christ. Now, with all of that as a setup, I just want you, to, I want you to see this beautiful picture of imputation that we see in Philemon 17 and 18. Now, this is Paul talking to Philemon regarding Onesimus. He says, if then you regard me a partner, Philemon, accept Onesimus as you would me. And then notice verse 18. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. 
Now, there's a couple of things I want you to notice here. Paul says, if Onesimus owes you anything, charge it to my account. Now, again, we don't know exactly what happened. Probably he stole something. And if it wasn't money, it was something that he probably sold. And that gave him the funds to live off of something so he could survive in the days that he'd left. But as you know, often happens in that situation is he probably spent it all and he found himself financially bankrupt. Do you see the picture of imputation here? Onesimus had nothing. He was in debt to Philemon. And Paul says, charge that to my account. Put that on my card. And then he says in verse 17 to, to Philemon, he said, when I send you Onesimus, will you do this? He said, will you accept him as you would me? When he's before you, I want you to view him as you would view me. Now, I want you to see that there are, there, there's actually some parallels here because in some ways we're like Onesimus. <laughs> we were rebellious in sin. We were bankrupt. And in some ways, Paul is a, is a little bit like Jesus. And in some ways, Philemon is a little bit like the Heavenly Father. And Jesus, what he really did is he said this to the Heavenly Father regarding you and me. What he owed due to sin and death charged to my account. I'll pay the price, is what Jesus said. And then also Jesus would, would say to this to the Heavenly Father. Father, when you see Bruce, I want you to see your own son, myself. Because my righteousness has been imputed, deposited, credited into his account. It's a beautiful picture, what we see here in Philemon, of what Christ did for us before the Heavenly Father. What he owed charged to me, I'll pay the price. And because I've credited righteousness into his account, when you see Bruce or Barbara or Jim, I want you to see your own son, Father, because I put all my righteousness into their account. Now, that's pretty cool so far, but let's, let's even make this a little more clear, all right? And let's look at the core reality of what imputation really means for us. And there are two phases of, of the imputation that occurs. Phase number one is this. Our sin was charged to Jesus' account. 
Remember, we were helpless, we were hopeless. We were slaves to sin. We were under the judgment of the wrath of God due to our rebellion. Look, look at 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. And the very last verse of 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. See, our sin was charged to Jesus' account. And uh, we're going to come back to this verse, but notice it says, He, speaking of God, made Him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. He took our sin and charged it to His account. By the way, we, we see that principle very clearly in the Bible, but I want to show you a passage in the Old Testament where that is emphasized. So you need to go back in the Old Testament to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, and we see this phase of imputation talked about. Familiar passage to many of us, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 to 6. Our sin charged to Jesus' account. Isaiah 53, 4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, verse 5, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And here you go. Here it comes now. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Our sin was charged to Jesus' account. Ray Pritchard paints it this way. He says, let's suppose all your sins have been written in one massive book. That book is heavy because it records every rotten thing you've ever said, every unkind word you've ever spoken, every mean thought, every lustful fantasy, every evil imagination, and all your bad attitudes from the day of your birth to the day of your death. And picture yourself trying to hold that massive book in your hands. Now picture Jesus standing next to you. He is holy, perfect pure and good. He has no book in his hands because he's never sinned. You want to get rid of the book, but you can't seem to find a place to put it down. What will you do? Now picture Christ on the cross with the weight of millions of books upon his bleeding back. He bears that crushing weight, and then he dies. Look closely and you will see that each book is the personal record of someone who lived on the earth. If you look closely, you can see your book too. He took your sins, the record of all your evil and all your failings and all your shortcomings. He took it all upon himself when he died on the cross. It doesn't mean that Jesus became a sinner. It just means that Jesus said, charge it to my account. I'll pay it. We see this phase of imputation, that our sin was charged to Jesus' account, also in the pages of the New Testament, multiple places, but I want to go look at one, and that's Colossians chapter 2. So you have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter number 2. 
And again, we see this picture of imputation, this phase where our sin was charged to Jesus' account. Slightly different wording, but it's the same concept. Look at verse 13 and 14, Colossians 2. When you were dead in your transgressions in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Now notice this little picture here, verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The certificate of debt that he's talking about here is something that, that, the, that the people would have understood. See, what they would do in that day is they would hang outside of your cell, if you were in prison, a list of your criminal deeds, or it was a list of the debts that you owed, because you would often be thrown into prison if you owed a debt you could not pay. That's the certificate of debt. And he says it consists of decrees against us. It's the, this is talking about the, the violations of God's law that we committed, that you committed, in thought and word and deed. And what happens with that? He took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You know, this is something we're never going to understand even until probably we get to heaven and then I think it may take some time. How all of the evil of all time was amalgamated and placed on Jesus Christ. And he took God's wrath, his just wrath. And you know, I, I can't even imagine the nuclear blast that was to the center of Jesus' being. Think about how often you hear of really evil things and it just makes you a little sick to your stomach. Well, Jesus took all of that and he said, charge that to my account. And that's why the little, the little saying that Jesus said on the cross among the seven things that he said when he said, well, it's the original word is to telestai, we often translate it, it, it is finished. It is an accounting term. It means paid in full. I paid it all off. That's just phase one of imputation. That's where our sin is charged to Jesus' account. I want you to see phase number two of imputation, and that is where Jesus' righteousness is credited to our account. It's credited to our account. Remember, we read about that in Romans chapter 4 and verses 3 and 5. Uh, it was credited as righteousness. It was credited as righteousness. And then, remember, we mentioned 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Let's go back there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. The first phase is that our sin was charged to Jesus' account, but the second phase, which is so important, is that Jesus' righteousness was credited to our account. Look again at that verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. That's the first part, the first phase. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the second phase. 
And you see how these things are woven together. That's because they all make up salvation. They don't necessarily fully stand alone. You have imputation and the bookkeeping terminology just paralleling the justification and the legal terminology that we looked at last time. All of these things woven together make up a full understanding of the light of our salvation. And by the way, I tell you, verse 21 is one of the most magnificent verses in all of the Bible. There, in the original, there are 20, 23 words there, but they're interesting. There's 21 one-syllable words. There's one two-syllable word, and there's one three-syllable word. You, you almost get it a little bit. He made him who knew no sin to be. You see how it works. That's the way it is in the original. His righteousness was credited to our account. It would be like, I mean, I don't even know, there's no way you can measure that. It'd be like him saying, here's 200 million, and then times that, times 200 more million, times that, times 200 more million. Just blows the the chart away. You, you, You know, the calculator doesn't go that high. And I want to just ask you, is that not something to relish? Is that not something to enjoy? Is not that not something to swish around in your mouth? To chew on it slowly and to savor it? Men men and women, I want you to know that is delicious, delectable theology. It's incredible theology. Imputation. God, the divine bookkeeper. He paid what we owed and could never pay. But not only that, he gave us what he had that we could never earn. It's amazing. Awesome to the max. Now I want to talk about, just for a few moments, some life response that we can have. Some response that we can have to what we've looked at this morning. And it's going to involve three elements. The first life response is a message that God has for some of us, and that is to admit your debt. God has been waiting for some of us to do that. To admit to him that I have a mountain of debt that I am unable to pay to admit to him that I am bereft of the spiritual capital, if you would, that would be needed to pay the debt. You can't do something, you can't jump high enough, run fast enough, you can't do anything about it. But Jesus said, I'm going to take that debt. And the response that he wants is he wants you to believe in that, to trust on that, to count on that as being true. And there needs to come a time in everyone's spiritual life where they do that. Where they say, and it's by faith, God, I'm requesting, I'm ready for you to make the transfer. I'm tired of trying to do this on my own. I want to believe and trust in you. 
Now, don't miss, I mean, hey, you wouldn't turn down someone who said, hey, I want to give you 200 million in your account. Why in the world would anybody say no to God's offer? Makes no sense to me. Second way we can have life response is to live out of gratitude. Live out of gratitude. I mean, it's amazing what he's done. The psalmist says in Psalm 32, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. How blessed is the person to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I want you to look at one passage here that I think is so important to look at, and you can just think about this later on, even this week, but look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Just let your, your eyes feast on this, this verse some this week. He himself bore our sins in his body, chapter 2, verse 24, on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. We need to live out of gratitude. And then the third way that we can have life response is simply to share your story. <laughs> to share your story. I mean, you know, if you, if you had someone give you $200 million, you'd never tire telling the story. You'd work it into the conversations. So share your story. Okay, maybe it's not the most spectacular story in your mind compared to certain people's stories, but share your story. And everybody needs Christ. The talented athlete at the University of Oklahoma needs Christ. The person who cleans houses here in Norman needs Christ. The CEO of a large oil company needs Christ. Your neighbor on the other side of the fence needs Christ. Share your story. Share your story. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you again just for the privilege we've had to investigate further the greatness of our salvation. We thank you. We didn't deserve what you've done. And Father, for those of us who've been through this, I simply want to pray this prayer for them. I pray that Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. That your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. And may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. And then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. May it be so. Amen.